0: Welcome back to this Interdisciplinary Life podcast, where interdisciplinary study students discuss works, ideas, and concepts as they pertain to our non-traditional degree. Hello, I'm your host, Brian, and on today's episode, classmates Cordesia, Sasha, Laura, and Dominic join me as we explore chapters 9 through 11 of Chris Guillebeau's book, The Art of Nonconformity. This book claims it can outline ways for the reader to set their own rules, live the life they want, and change the world. Cordesia, Sasha, and I will summarize for you each chapter, drawing out a main point. Laura will make connections from the book to an assignment we've recently submitted about structuring our own personal narratives. And Dominic will raise some challenges to the author. So first
1: up, chapter nine. Cordesia Sanders, chapter nine summary. In chapter 9, Gilbo begins by describing Haruki Murakami's purpose in writing and the identity he creates around writing that also associates with the way he typically approaches life. Throughout the chapter, he breaks down the process of radical exclusion and how it benefits others' lives in numerous ways. He identifies life as eliminating the unnecessary and enriching our lives through abundance. In awe, Murakami seems to persuade his readers to take a risk in order to rational out what he believes are unnecessary responsibilities. Although people have goals and sometimes they are in a position where they cannot achieve their goals because they have other responsibilities, he believes there is always a way around it. You just have to ask yourself why. The ultimate goal here in this chapter is to find a solution for positive shifts in your life and to make it worth something. However everyone will have different solutions to embracing their lives, just as well as everyone not being able to give up something they are used to in order to figure out what will be necessary to their lives. A limiting is key to abundance and living your life to the fullest. The key point in Chapter 9. The main point within this chapter is abundance. Chris Gilbo shares the motive of, of Haruki Murakami which expresses the life of abundance and the priorities it takes to further advance towards your personal goals. Throughout the chapter, there are necessary steps to take in order to embrace your life to the fullest, which includes making active decisions based on how you want to live your life, because there will be many obstacles and distractions along the way. Overall, the given point is to live your life abundantly through taking risks, setting your own rules, and being at peace within yourself.
0: I like the way you sum that up, Cordesia, that it's about taking risks, setting your own rules, and living at peace with both of those things. And when put that way, that chapter nine sounds like solid advice for an abundant life or a life well lived. I took on chapter 10, and you'll have to forgive me for editorializing a bit here in my summary. But for me, chapter 10 was the most glaring example of embracing this all or nothing attitude from an author who clearly belongs to a specific set in society and uses the glitter that comes with the long list of globetrotting adventure stories to help sell the idea behind his book. But let me explain. So the chapter centers around his self-imposed challenge to visit 192 countries by his 35th birthday. And then there's an exhaustive list of destinations that are name dropped as a result of his travels working on that list. And the idea is that one can acquire a cultural nomadic education that would erase the boundaries that confine us to working or living or existing in any one space. And in his actual words, and I quote, this chapter focuses on seeing the world. Now, I would argue one can see the world without seeing the world, but his point here is to travel and how one can go about traveling. So with that in mind, I do think the best advice that the chapter offers that Gillibo presents here is that it's for anyone who's actually interested in expanding their literal worldview but feels it's unattainable is that if you were to save $2 a day for two years, it can basically get you anywhere on the globe for that getaway. Now, this is assuming, of course, you're able to snag the best fares, the best lodging, and he has some tips there and work schedule. But for Gillibo, your work schedule would be something that only you are in charge of. So that should be, in theory, easy. Aside from that, though, Guillebeau is a bit all over the place. His advice includes both planning like an engineer, but maybe potentially jumping in with both feet, maybe not planning at all. And depending on the person, you know, it's a choose-your-own-nonconformity, really, when it comes to travel. So he mentions more than once that maybe seeing the world isn't for anyone, but he mentions way more times how much of the world he has seen – and this book to me is really about his his path to non, through nonconformity to success so if you don't do it that way i don't know that he really poses an alternate way to get there So there was one sentence in this chapter, however, that really created for me this sense that this dude isn't selling anything that I'm going to buy. I mean, I'm all for nonconformity and finding one's own way, definitely off the beaten path of this capitalist, patriarchal, nine to five in an office gig, if I can help it thing. Yeah, I'm all for that. Please tell me how to do it. But I'm not going to feel very inspired by someone when presenting ideas about travel to those who may need a push to see how they can actually see the world, right? They're trapped in that, in that life that we all feel we're trapped in. Um, he says, and I quote again, I'm self-employed, but not independently wealthy, and I don't have any unfair advantage that isn't obtainable to most of the people who will read this book. end quote. And I don't know about you listeners, but personally, I'm not a young white man with a grad school degree. So I feel like he just shut the book for a lot of people where it was an opportunity to really open up some doors and some ideas. Um, But uh, that's my opinion in chapter 10. So chapter 11, Sasha, what did you find there?
2: Hey listeners, it's Sasha, and I'm going to be going over Chapter 11, which is entitled Your Legacy Starts Now. The author starts this chapter by remembering a core moment for him when a war veteran was a keynote speaker. The war veteran was able to talk about the war for several long minutes before getting into the topic he was there to talk about. The war was more than 30 years ago, and the author found himself asking, what has he been doing for the past 30 years, and why hasn't it measured up to what he had done then? The author thought of his own adventures in Africa back in 2006, and how when he had returned from Africa, all he could talk about was Africa and all the things that he had done there. He pairs this by saying, glory days are dangerous, and you can get easily sucked into only talking about those days and not finding any new ones. Instead of focusing on those days, we should willingly let go of those times and say to ourselves, that was incredible. I am so fortunate to have had those experiences. Since my glory days were so transformative, I'd better start finding a way to have more of them. We have to stop coasting on our glory days and find a way to move on to stuff bigger and better. We need to create a new legacy. When setting out for a new project, you need to have a couple things in mind. You need to have a vision. How will the world be different because of this project? You need to think of the benefits. Who's going to benefit from this? How will you do the work? What will be produced as a result of your work? And how will success be measured? These key characteristics can not only keep you on task while completing a project, but also will help you measure your success at the end of it. You have to remember, all the good things you've done are nice, but the future can be better. Focus on that. A key point from chapter 11 that I would like to highlight is that the author believes that the journey or the process is just as important as the final destination or final product. The process of doing good work and building a legacy may be more important than the final act itself, but it's good to have a goal. So to make sure we don't get stuck in our glory days, after focusing on a destination or a deliverable, make sure you have a new goal right after the first one has been completed. The author gives the example of after he finishes writing the Book of Nonconformity, he's going to immediately plan to write another. He's not going to settle. He's going to keep going, which we should also do in our own lives. We shouldn't settle. We should keep going. We should continue doing good work and creating a legacy for ourselves.
0: Thank you, Sasha. I'm really loving the way that you are all pulling out key points and condensing them in a way that's way more positive and useful for me personally to use this book than the way I have been reading the book. And maybe you'll see that as we move forward here. The last section of The Art of Nonconformity is not an actual chapter, but it's a separate section entitled Conclusion, Dangerous Ideas. So here, Gillibo reiterates his claim that he realizes this book isn't for everyone. He states that it's just for those wanting to challenge the status quo. I would argue that that's not just who it's for, but he takes aim at rebuttals such as we can't do what we want all the time, or some of us have to be responsible, or that doesn't work in the real world, which I can tell you all of those things constantly came to mind, not because... I don't think outside the box or don't do things differently than the status quo, but sometimes his generalizations did not offer enough to have me feel like I could be empowered to then move outside the status quo. Um, He quickly points out that it's much more suited to those who are willing, although I would argue able, to accept risk and try new things, uh, going as far as to specify that that group is truly made up of, and I quote, entrepreneurs and others. So Those who are willing and able to invest in their own internal career security. That's who this book is specifically written for. So then Gillibout identifies some quote unquote dangerous ideas. And this is where he finally gives up some tangible examples of the kind of legacy work that one could potentially be putting their efforts into. And I'm just going to list them complete with my own challenges as we go down the list. Um, So the first one is revolt and change universities. So he first rightfully points out that there's ineptitude in higher education, that many of the courses even in our most prestigious universities, they rely heavily on rote memorization as an acceptable form of learning. And he says fight that, change it. He claims that students are the ones with the real power in these institutions and they need to work to change that. He suggests maybe that could be your cause, but I don't remember him ever laying down any groundwork there and I just remember him talking about him getting his master's and like taking classes all over the place. So cool. But I think that's a fantastic idea. But I also think that those of us who are fortunate enough to find a way to pay for college are really just interested in getting our college degrees. I mean, we want to move on past that. We want to learn and grow and experience there. But I Don't think that the majority of people are going to try and shake up the system there. Is that disappointing? Maybe. But I'd like to see him take on my human biological diversity class and find time to fight the system and still get an A. So his next point um, or suggestion is that communities should abolish 98% of homelessness by allocating space for tent cities with free shelter for up to one year. Now, this is something I totally dig, and I think it's a truly worthy cause, and I applaud him for putting it in there. I also think it's directly tied to advocating for free, low-cost rehab, mental health care, and the increase of minimum wage to a livable wage. People need options and a way to move forward. So I feel like this was a very, like, yeah, dangerous idea, but maybe I prefer a longer bullet list with more things to draw from because there's just not enough here to get people to understand what really that means to do that or to fight for that one thing. His next suggestion is, I thought, kind of odd. Charities should no longer exist if they failed to solve the problem they were created to. So this one felt really out of left field to me. Gillibell likes the idea or he likens this idea to businesses close when they fail. But charities, they don't have to do that, is what he's saying. So I feel like charities do some good. And a lot of them don't do the good that they set out to do. No, but he's saying fine, then get out of the way. But I find that super harsh. And I'm not exactly sure where it came from. I personally have worked for a number of nonprofits. He also had stated earlier in the book that, you know, He's all in favor of getting volunteers to do work over paid people, because if people volunteer, they're really going to be there for you. And I can tell you, if it's raining outside and the work's outside, nah, maybe not. So, um... I don't know where his head's at there, and I'm not sure where, where that one is going. Uh, he also advocates for open prisoners, for nonviolent offenders. Absolutely gets a fist pump bump from me. Um, and then he lumps systematic poverty, malnutrition, and illiteracy as societal issues that we could solve with, and I quote, enough commitment from individuals and groups completely eradicating them without government funding. And that sounds fantastic, but if only systemic poverty, malnutrition, and illiteracy, and by association, education, wasn't directly tied to our wages, our voting, and every aspect of our government that we need to address to affect that positive change. So funny, Gillibo never makes any comment about political action, Um, even civic action on a political scale. He totally steers clear of that, but it's so intertwined in our society, I kind of feel like that's maybe a little irresponsible. So... He then closes with the idea that all of this is not luck, it's a choice, and he tells his readers to be daring, be different, be impractical, to think provocatively, but to me, it's more of those glittering generalities that we find throughout the text. And he often tells us what not to do, regularly giving us words to aspire to, but never really outlining a plan. It's just lots of stories on how he did it. And okay, there are plans. there, be frugal. But don't worry about money. And plan like an engineer. But jump in with two feet, without really planning. Yeah, they were really clear. So he then claims that the world has enough sleepwalkers and cynics. And there, I'll admit, he is on to something. I agree. And I agree that building your own road can be beneficial, not just for yourself, but for the world around you and in very profound ways. I'm just not so sure that the framework for designing that road that Chris Gillibell writes about in The Art of Nonconformity is all that concise or really helpful here. But let's talk about something that is helpful. Laura, you were able to take the text and draw from it examples of things that connected this text to the work that we do in interdisciplinary studies and specifically um, a project that we did or an assignment we did on constructing our own narrative. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Hi, my name is Laura, and I am discussing the second question of what connections can you draw between this text and the previous discussion on constructing your narrative. So, throughout most of his book, the author of The Art of Conformity, Chris Galibu, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, has been basically telling us to fight against the status quo, continue to... Forge your own path, go along the unbeaten road, Jack Frost, all of that fun stuff. It's basically constructing your own narrative and what how you want to write your own story. In chapter 9, he has a section of choices, inputs, and obligations you can usually end on page 180. And this is about basically cutting yourself off from things that you don't actually want to do. Obligations are part of social construct and expectation. You don't have to do anything. And if that's not where your life is supposed to end up in your head and your hopes, then you don't have to do what the society tells you to. You don't have to follow through on a beaten path that other people created for you. And that's similar to our degree. We don't have to necessarily go along with the same exact courses that everyone else does. We kind of create our own like narrative, story, course load. We learn the lessons we want. And in doing that, we kind of create our own foundation of knowledge and also alter and change our lives to our own whims, not the societal norm. Another part of that was his discussion on a nomadic education in 189, that's the page, where he in Contrarian Adventures explains how he had a more travel-based and experience-based education where he went to Montana, Alabama, Alabama, the Philippines. His parents took him country to country and he learned many things by just traveling and experiencing the world around him. Something that isn't necessarily valued as much in today's societal culture with the inflation of education and the similar like machinations that the universe sort of has created for us in today's world and modern times. Society dictates that we have to go through a cookie cutter press of education and business and we have to get a nine to five job And then we get spit out to go forth and later possibly die without actually fulfilling what we may individually want and yearn for. And through constructing our own narrative and through different experiences and accepting that maybe unusual experiences, situations, and life events can help shape us in a productive way Maybe if we accepted these different methods of education, we would be more fulfilled in our lives. Then he moves on to talk about how to see experience in the world with thoughtful planning and testing waters and different steps to use when using an alternative form of education. But at the end of the day, he says that you should just go for it and do as you wish because that's what making your own story and constructing your own narrative is about and then most of all he says how our legacy starts now we search and he touches base on this through his excerpts of man's search for meaning which was an Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl who wrote about being imprisoned in a concentration camp for three years And within that, Frankl comes to the realization that meaning and enough is subjective. It's relative to the system and situation that you yourself find yourself in. Anything can be enough for you, whether it's uh, just being able to have some food that day, water, basic needs met, or maybe you just wanna fulfill this one little thing on your bucket list. Whatever that is, you define your own and not few define your own meaning and purpose in life. And I think that's actually a really beautiful thing. So, overall, his book is telling us to go forth and just forge our own path and make our own stories and find the path less traveled by and explore. Anyway... Thank you. I hope you have a nice day.
0: Thank you, Laura. And I think that you, in talking about one of the connections that you saw, um, made me realize a connection I didn't even... Notice when I was reading um, these chapters. But you were talking about how Guillabo talks about traveling and exploring, and you pointed out how that is not the norm, how our society has made that not a priority, almost a luxury, that we don't travel the world. You know, that's for the elite, that's for people who have a lot of money or a lot of time or a different class of people, and that experiencing the world globally is just not normal um, practice. And so what I realized as you were talking about that and how that connects to our degree is that traveling the world and viewing it from different perspectives and different cultures is very much like the interdisciplinary perspective because we get to explore different disciplines um, that we choose. It's like a choose your own adventure degree. You know, what viewpoints do I want to explore um, would be very similar to what cultures do I want to explore? How do I want to view the world? What questions do I want to answer? And it's such a broader view when you can incorporate different disciplines versus just one, just like you would have a different view if you could incorporate different cultures into your life by really immersing yourself in them and experiencing them versus just viewing them from afar or just staying inside your own Um, home space. So I appreciate what you had to say because it really got me starting to think about what I had already read and completely did not realize. And finally, Dominic, you are going to pose for us some challenges to the author about his book, The Art of Nonconformity.
4: The appeal of this book unwittingly has a barrier of entry that may be perceived as inaccessible to certain demographics. The author seems presumptuously aware of his target audience, but who the book is for, who might be drawn to it, and who may benefit the most might all be different. Giving more suggestions for different levels of entry of adapting the practices he's trying to encourage may help broaden the range of appeal. The mention of Seth Godin is great, however, it's indicative creative industries inherently echo throughout this book. Not everybody belongs to a creative industry. He's quoted as saying, balanced people don't change the world but reaching them might also prove advantageous for the world. Some of the author's means of resources are lacking. Some suggestive resources applicable to various income-slash-commitment levels I would also challenge the author to think about. There are many of his points that go from introduction to extreme rather fast. Perhaps expanding laterally on these points and giving perspectives of more traditional examples that have challenged the status quo in their own way may provide insight to certain people that don't connect with the way that he writes. Not everybody grew up with the exposure to independent travel he had at an early age. He stated he's aware of the differences of everybody's respective journey, but there could be a little more done in terms of inclusion. It's important to note that at the end of the book, in the frequently asked questions, he does say that he has a list of resources that didn't make the book that ended up on his website, but it's not in the book, and therefore the resources aren't considered of the book. I would challenge the author to list those resources in the text and not edit it out because for certain people, that may be the independent push they need to get where they need to go in their journey.
0: Thank you, Dominic. As usual, I can count on you to take some of the arguments raging around in my head and put them ever so eloquently in our podcast. Well, that's it for us, friends. We hope you've enjoyed this interdisciplinary life podcast. May your journey be full of whatever you wish it to be. Now go do something good in the world.